In this episode, I'm joined by director Nina Menkes. Here she is on her new film, Brainwashed Sex Camera Power. I think that we've seen more work that confronts these tropes, these traditional subject-objectified women sex scenes. We've seen more films that confront those tropes by queer women directors than by anybody else because they're already on the forefront of reimagining sexuality, you might say. And it's difficult to find examples where a heterosexual love scene, sex scene, is done in a way where you do not have the woman as the objectified party. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith, and today I welcome Nina Menkes to talk about her documentary, Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power. I spoke to Nina before a special Girls on Film screening of the film in association with the BFI. The male gaze is definitely normalised in our society. Almost all of us are familiar with the phrase, the objectification of women. What exactly is an object and what is a subject? It's the stuff that I think you thought, and maybe I thought, well, everybody knows this, it's in the ether. And so to name it and to show it is something that I believe can change the world. I personally see a very clear connection between this visual language of cinema, employment discrimination against women. It's a visual medium, Kayla. And an environment of pervasive sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. In a visual culture such as ours, if the camera is predatory, then the culture is predatory as well. This is the power of storytelling on the screen. Nina, welcome to Girls on Film. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to finally meet you in person. It's so be great because we have spoken quite a few times because I absolutely loved Brainwash when I first saw it at festivals. I ended up talking to you when you are in Berlin and we did the feature for The Guardian recently and now Special Girls on Film. So amazing. it is great to be actually in the same room as you. Um, for our listeners who haven't yet seen the film or read much about it, can you give them a little intro to that? Yeah, the film is, um, you might call it a clip movie. It has almost 200 film clips from A-list movies, the you know, masterpieces of world cinema from 1896 all the way to the present. And it looks at the way that shot design itself, the actual way we compose visual images, is tied and colludes with and collaborates with the twin epidemics of sexual assault, sexual abuse, and employment discrimination against women, especially in the film industry, but not only in the film industry. It's a jaw-dropping watch, and we'll get into some specifics in a bit. But I also wanted to mention that this is based on academic lectures that you yourself conducted. Can you talk to me a little bit about working with your team to bring this to the big screen after presenting to an audience? Yeah, one of the challenges was exactly that. How do we take 
something that was a lecture for students and turn it into a feature film that's very cinematic and, you know, I don't know if I can say fun to watch, but it's very watchable. So the first thing was that the editor, Cecily Rett, the way that the original talk was, it was chronological. It went through time. And the first thing she said is like, let's throw out chronological, you know, let's mix up all the years and let's structure it thematically. You know, at first you lay out the rules, like sort of the five rules, and then it gets into, you know, the whole employment thing and the whole rape culture thing. And, and then it ends hopefully on a sort of more hopeful note. But the other central thing in the structure was to show, she called it the green eggs and ham structure, which she took from Dr. Zeus, which was like, you know, it's not only in the moat, it's not only on the boat, it's not only in the tree, it's not only in the da-da-da. So, you know, what we did in the film is lay out how you see this visual language, you know, when the woman is sexually objectified as a character, but when the woman is a protagonist, when the woman is a wonder woman or a power woman in the film in terms of the story, when the director is a woman, when the film is actually a feminist film, you know, when it's a horror film, when it's a drama, when it's 1940 and when it's 2021. So it's just like, again and again and again and again, it's this meta message, this underground river that underlies whatever else is going on in the movie. And that affects us subconsciously. Women actors are often shot with fragmented body parts. Another thing that's very common is a female body on direct display for the audience without a specific person looking. There's a saying that if people were to get rid of all the sexual predators, that there would be no film industry. This cinematic visual language can really feel like the bedrock language of rape culture. As Audrey Lord said, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. It is quite disturbing, I think, as an audience member, even if you've been analyzing your own responses to popular culture for many years, as I have and many of our listeners will have, there are still parts of that film which I found quite uncomfortable and moments of realization. Are there any um, particular points that you found people have really, it, it's kind of shocked and kind of slightly disturbed them? Yeah, I mean, there's one critic who wrote that she had to take a Valium after the film. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. just like, yeah. at least she was honest to say that, yeah. you know, because I think that there have been people who get disturbed by the film and then instead of saying, I need a Valium, they're like, kill the messenger like you know right we hate nina shut up go away <laughs> you're just helping to open people's eyes to something and to my mind that's a very positive thing because as you show at the end of the film the idea is progress yes. is happening and um, progress is good that's certainly something we celebrate on girls on film and um, do you want to talk to me before we get into perhaps some of the more negative ones about the positive examples at the end i think portrait of a lady on fire is one in particular which yeah. we're big fans of that is an amazing film because it's actually about this issue of subject object which underlies the whole of brainwashed you know everyone's heard the phrase the objectification of women but you forget that when you have an object you have to have a subject it doesn't exist by itself it exists with the subject the subject is the one who is acting upon or seeing the object 
And that subject is just assumed to be everyone, the whole world. But when you realize that, yeah, but what about us? What about those of us who are actually the object here? It's really kind of complicated, confusing, and painful. And I think Celine Sciamma, what she does in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, in a completely different way than Brainwashed, of course, it's a brilliant narrative, but she is looking at subject and object when both women are subjects. And that's really the question. You know, is it possible to do a sex scene where two people are subjects? Of course it is, but we just haven't seen it. We don't know what that looks like. I and mean, you said to me, and this was actually the Guardian headline, patriarchy has no gender. Well, first of all, I want to give credit to Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks is the one who said a patriarchy has no gender. And obviously, she's absolutely right because, you know, there are men who are radical thinkers and feminists, and there are women who are, you know, self-hating misogynists. That said, the fact that 95% of the films that we've seen over time have been made by white heterosexual males, you know, that has affected the majority of the films that we see. When we come to um, things like Deline Siamo and female directors, do you think gender and indeed sexuality can have perhaps a positive effect? Because I, I remember also for The Guardian, I once did an article about, you know, should men be making lesbian sex scenes? You know, should, right. or should the women be in control of those scenes? Because Celine Siena is out and openly gay. I wonder right. how you feel about Well, I think that we've seen more um, work that confronts these tropes, these traditional, you know, subject objectified women sex scenes. We've seen more films that confront those tropes by queer women directors than by anybody else because they're already on the forefront of reimagining sexuality, you might say. It's harder, I think, for us to imagine what a heterosexual love scene would be if it's subject-subject. That feels like, whoa, what would that be? Like, it's just, it's so radical. It shouldn't be such a radical concept, but it's quite a radical concept. And it's difficult to find examples where a heterosexual um, love scene, sex scene, is done in a way where you do not have the woman as the objectified party. Again, for those who haven't seen the film, we can drill down a bit more in what yeah. you talk about the subject object, because for me, I find it very fascinating when you pointed out that when men are sort of half naked or naked right. in films, they're very often active and shown right. in their full profile. Right. But I'm simplifying here, so you correct me, but when women are shown, they're so often fragmented and their bodies are shown and it's kind of divorced from their personalities in a way. Right. Well, the, you know, what happens to, you know, the male heterosexual subject is that they learn from a very young age that they're a full-on human subject and that their sexuality is part of that subjecthood. It's integrated into their subjecthood. Women are trained that our sexuality is split off and, and deeply connected with being an object, with the to-be-looked-at-ness position. So when you have a sexy male star like Brad Pitt, he will always be photographed, you know, full body, doing some action. That's sexy for a guy to be a subject, to be doing stuff and to be a whole person. Women sexy is silent, fragmented, split off from their subjecthood. 
you can see it laid out. <laughs> and, and if you watch Brainwash, you'll see it laid out in 200 examples. And it's quite staggering. I mean, I'm the one who made the film, but when I watched the finished film, I thought like, how do we as women even wake up in the morning, have coffee and do anything? Because you've, you've had this, this kind of bulldozer thing on you that you're primarily an object. So, you know, people have different solutions to that. I mean, every individual woman has a different solution. You know, some, like my thing was, I just was, I was like split. I couldn't integrate it. I think some women maybe have learned to integrate it, but there's always that piece, you know, whereas someone in the film says, you know, when I'm in the shower, I feel like, I'm looking at myself in the shower. I can't just be in the shower. Yeah, that was a really interesting moment. It makes you realize that you've been taught to objectify even your own body or, or look for the ideals that we see in adverts and everything. I think that when you see how it's laid out in visual language, it makes a lot of sense. Like some of those weird feelings that you might have felt when you're in a movie, like I don't really like that scene and I don't know why. I don't know why I'm alienated from that scene. It's really kind of a good scene. Why do I hate it? Why do I feel like I'm sitting next to my boyfriend and I feel like I can't relate to him? Like it's, it's just, it does, it really plays a weird number on our heads. We still totally normalize the male gaze in cinema. You know, I think the majority of people don't ever really question that form of looking. It's so normal. It's like the idea of a fish asking if it's wet. It's the stuff that I think you thought, and maybe I thought, well, everybody knows this. It's in the ether, but it's the ether. And so to name it and to show it is, is you know, something that I believe can change the world. The poet-philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson once made a beautiful remark that I feel speaks very well to the situation. He said, perception is not whimsical, but fatal. You know, this is something that people like to say, like they think creative work and films are, are whimsical. It's just my vision, it's just my idea, it's whimsical. But no, it's really serious, it's fatal, and it impacts us on the deepest possible level. Awareness is step number one. Yeah, and, and for the future, right? For the young women of the future, yeah. we want them to have healthier relationships yeah. with men and with each other and with their own sexuality, right? Yeah. So important. Um, I wanted to talk to you about decades, actually. You mentioned the chronology. Yes. Are there any particular decades that are worse offenders than others? The, the really worst, worst was probably 80s and 90s, mm. I have a feeling. But interestingly, we saw it across all decades. After we had put the whole film together, we went through and actually wrote down how many examples per year, you know, starting like 1896 was one. It was a Cabbage Fairy by Alice Villachet, right? And then we went through, and I realized that it wasn't like there was a lot in certain decades and very few in others. I mean, it's really across all the decades, you'll see it. You know, it seems to be really this kind of cinematic law that everyone was unconsciously observing. So yeah, one of the most striking examples, I think, is the film Blade Runner, which yeah. of course many of us uh, know and love well. But each time I see Blade Runner, I think I become even more uncomfortable with a particular scene which you highlight in the film, which is when Deckard and Rachel are together. He's trying it on with her. She resists and says no, and he persists and gets quite aggressive with her. And crucially, 
the music as well becomes very romantic. Why did you particularly want to choose that scene? Well, it's funny because when I looked at that scene again for the film, I was blown away at the change of music because I hadn't remembered that. I remembered the scene, but I hadn't remembered the music. And it's, I mean, it's training you. It's absolutely training you. You know, the guy is being violent to the woman. She's saying no. He shoves her against the wall like it's very violent. And then suddenly they switch to this romantic tune and they make out and it's true love. And that music shift, we saw the exact same music shift in The Postman uh, Almost Rings Twice. Always rings always, twice. always rings twice. We saw the exact same thing. It's like a rape scene. And then suddenly the music changes to romance and it's true love. So I was like, whoa, you know, because that's another place where we have 5% women composers working in the film industry, 5%. So the worst statistics are women composers and women DOPs. In the United States, it's still 95% male for both of those. You know, I wonder how many women composers would go along with the idea that a rape scene turns into a love scene and let's change the music right here. You know, so that has definitely shocked people when they notice it and they're sort of like oh, this one woman told me like i love your documentary but you've ruined all my favorite films well it's a question isn't it does it have to be i mean it's something we debate on girls on film quite often of course you rewatch something and you go oh, god that's frightfully sexist but i still quite love it you right. know are there any films featured in the film which you're very critical of that you still actually love and do you find it possible to have those kind of mixed feelings about them i think you can yeah. i mean one film in particular that that I love very much Metropolis. We feature that towards the beginning of Brainwash from 1927. I think it's the original male gaze sequence. I mean, it's stunningly done. It's beautiful. I love it. But it is the ultimate male gaze okay. sequence. Um, that film, um, when I was asked to participate in the BFI 100 best of the year, I mean, of the world, whatever, I put that film on there because I do think it's genius. But you can say, you know, I love this film, it's genius, but let's look at the sexual politics here. That's interesting. It's especially interesting if you say, I can see the same thing in, you know, 200 of the top A-list films. I'm not trying to be cancel culture, not at all. In fact, one of the requirements for even being in Brainwashed was that it was a beautifully made piece of work. I think you also said something like you're not the sex police or something. No, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not the yeah. sex police. <laughs> because that, that was another reaction that we got strangely, I think very strange if you actually watch the movie. Um, you know, you're a prude, you know, you're anti-sex or something. I'm like, I'm not sure how you got to that conclusion if you watch all the way to the end because we give a lot of examples of really hot sex scenes that are just not subject-object. They're like two subjects. But people, I think, get so triggered by the idea that the films that they've been watching all this time have been like poisonous on a certain level that they just freak out. 
you know, and then they want to do something. So they say, well, Nina's a prude. It's like, well, I don't think that's really true. Yeah, well, clearly not. <laughs> uh, and as I say, I, I feel like, you know, one of the goals of, of better sex on screen is better sex in real life, where yeah. everything is much more just kind of harmonious and equal. Um, do you feel passionately about this subject yourself on a personal level? Is that one of the reasons you wanted to bring this to the screen? Absolutely. I mean, as I say at the very beginning of the film, you know, as a filmmaker and as a woman, both, I have lived this problem on every level of my life. I've lived it as, as a woman, I've lived it in relationships, I've lived it as a filmmaker struggling. You know, I mean, now, very recently, there's been a shift, but, you know, most of my life, women director, th those two words just didn't even go together, woman director, didn't even, you know, I mean, if you search film director on Google, you'll just get the oh yeah a long <laughs> stream of guys, you know. And I mean, I knew from early on that filmmaking was my vocation, and I needed to do it. And I was I came down and manifested on planet Earth to do it, and um, I didn't get a whole lot of support. It was really, really. A, a struggle. I mean, it continues to be a struggle. So I, I faced all of these issues on my own skin and, um, you know, sexual harassment, all of that stuff. I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's a woman on planet Earth who hasn't gone through it, you know. Yeah. You sort of ignore it because you just think it's normal. It actually shouldn't be normal. But yeah, so the, the impetus for all my work has been, you know, the my passion about this problem, and, and you could say I've dedicated my life and my work to it. The Me Too movement spoke out loud about what so many of us had experienced privately. In my own fiction films, I often tried to express cinematically how it really feels to be a sexualized object. So A, everyone needs to see Brainwashed, we've established that, but B, obviously, you know, you're a wonderful filmmaker in your own right, and you've also got your own season, The Cinematic Sorceress. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to tell the listeners a bit about that? Yeah, I'm so excited and honoured to have my work showcased at the BFI. I mean, my own fictional films from day one took a very different approach to the way I photograph women. And my first feature, Magdalena Viraga, is about a prostitute who hates her work. You never see her take off her clothes. Um, there are nine long sex scenes, and they they focus really only on her face. And there was a you know a huge outcry when that film originally came out. I think it's still radical today. So all of my films, in different ways, present another perspective on a way that you can show women on screen. I'm certainly not alone in doing that. You know, some of my favorite filmmakers have done it. Of course, John Dielman was number one on the BFI. Um, Agnes Varda's Vagabond is one of my favorite films. And on that note, I think it's worth to say that, you know, when we're talking about females being subjects, we don't mean empowered wonder women. I mean, we'd all love to be empowered wonder women, at least sometimes, but being a subject means that you have a whole range of experiences. You might be depressed, you might be suicidal, you might be, 
mourning. You you might be happy. You might be conflicted. I mean, you you have a lot. I mean, the, the whole range of the human experience is part of being a woman, and that's being a subject. So my films do look at the more abject aspect of being, uh, you know, in the diminished power position and the rage that goes along with that and the alienation that goes along with that. But my women are all subjects and they're photographed very differently. So you're in the UK for a while and then maybe having a breather after all this excitement, who knows? <laughs> but what is next for you after Brainwash? Well, I have two feature scripts that I'm trying to get off the ground. And um, I had a great meeting this morning with somebody. So who knows? Maybe, not maybe. It's for sure now there's more space for women to get their stories told. It, I mean, I can feel it in my own life and I see it around me. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. Better late than never, right? <laughs> exactly. Couldn't agree with you more. And please come back on Girls on Film because it's absolutely love such a pleasure to have you, Nina. Thank you oh, so much. Thanks for all your support. It means so much. Oh, well, Thank you so much. We're on the same page here. Thanks, Nina. <laughs> Thank you. That was Nina Menkes. Brainwashed Sex Camera Power is in UK cinemas now. Cinematic Sorceress, the films of Nina Menkes, runs at BFI Southbank from 6th to the 31st of May 2023. Girls on Film is an HLA production, brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio editor Benjamin Cook, assistant producer Eleanor Hardy, BFI Distribution and principal partners Vanessa Smith and Peter Brewer. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. actress is introduced via see-through underwear, fuzzy lighting, fragmented body, and one might wonder if this is supposed to be her face. <laughs> <laughs>